I think the first thing that's going to happen is that private existing private school parents are going to say, wait, I'm not eligible for this. I thought the whole conversation was that I was going to be eligible for this. Hey, y'all, this is where Texas politics gets interesting. Here again are two guys named Jason, some great guests and cold Texas beer for another smart conversation on Yolitics, the unofficial political podcast of Texas. Hey everybody, welcome back for another week of Yolitics. We've got a different voice with us this week. Hello everybody. A very That's not voice. Jason. That's not Jason Whiteley. That is not Jason Whiteley. That is the great Teresa oh, Woodard. Oh, the great. Uh, believe me. Uh, and, and Jason Whiteley is off this week. We, he's not off the podcast. Uh, it's just he's taking a break from me. I'm taking a break from him. <laughs> and nobody I would rather take a break with than uh, Teresa Woodard, which, you know, I call I her the great Teresa that. Woodard because she is great. Uh, we are at the Yolitix headquarters today in the radio room. I'm gonna do the same. And you hear the beers being popped there. Uh, we are having, uh, I have a community beer called Extra Slice, or no, Citra Slice, and you're having a revolver. Revolver prickly pear. So you'll notice there, cheers. Cheers, uh, it's been a week. The, the commonality there uh, between these two beers is that they're both fruity beers, which Whiteley hates, and so it just makes it taste even better. You knew he wasn't here, and you knew you had somebody who'll drink pretty much any beer. <laughs> and, and no one to criticize, <laughs> no one to criticize my fresh, light beer choice today so it's, it's kind of nice so Ooh, that's good. cheers to you whitely wherever you are having a very <laughs> sour or dark beer <laughs> uh, so today we've got uh, you know as we uh, you know take a, a swig here we're talking about a serious topic uh, and i think that a lot of people haven't really been keeping up with this teresa it's been talked about over and over and over oh, and over again here in Texas. Many times. And every time it seems to just fizzle out. It's not fizzling this time. It hasn't, yeah, it hasn't yet. We, we'll see if it does, but it seems like it's got more staying power this time around in this legislative session in this newest iteration. And again, I think just because it has been brought up so many times and has fizzled so many times and it doesn't have a sexy name to begin with, although the name keeps changing of what it is, I think that people do kind of tune out and they don't pay attention to the details that are happening, but this is something that would affect millions, millions of families in Texas in some sweeping ways if it happens. Yeah, you can call it school choice, you can call it educational freedom, you can call it educational savings accounts. School vouchers. School vouchers. That's mm -hmm. the word that a lot of people know it as, mm -hmm. um, and that's what's being proposed. This is not just a Texas thing. Yeah. This is happening across the country. It's sort of a wave of states that are taking this on. Mainly um, Republican states. This is becoming a Republican priority, yeah. uh, you know, touting, you know, parental freedom, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and basically what it would do, what it does, is it takes money that would go toward a public school. So every time you send your kid to public school, the state chips in thousands of dollars to pay for that education. Well under this plan, you could pull your kid out of public school and send them to a private school, perhaps even a religious school, and the state would, instead of funneling that money to the public school where your kid used to go, would send it to the private school. And a lot of people have problems with that. Some people think it's great, but some people think, why would my taxpayer money be going to a religious institution or a private institution that has much less oversight, if any oversight, from the state. Let's talk about why this hasn't succeeded in years past. And one of the biggest hurdles, one of the biggest impediments to it has been 
Republicans. Absolutely. And a, a specific group of them. Rural Re Republicans. Rural Republicans, which is hard to rural. Rural, rural is one of those words that I really hate to it say, is. everybody. You're not you're not gonna enjoy listening to me say rural throughout this entire thing. Rural, rural, rural. <laughs> Uh, Republicans uh, have stood in the way of this uh, for, for many years and in different iterations as this has come up uh, because in a lot of cases you get into these smaller rural communities and the school is the center of sure. activity. It is It holds a special place where it might not and it offers so many jobs in many of these small towns. Maybe even the biggest employer there. Correct. Uh, but that school takes on a significance that sometimes we don't see in the big urban areas. Urban areas, though, are going to have to especially watch out, perhaps, if this current proposal gets through, because what they've done this time is they've sweetened the deal mm -hmm. for those rural districts to keep giving them more money for a couple of years, and those urban districts wouldn't keep getting that same amount of money. And so this really is a, a funding threat for, for some of the bigger districts in Texas. It is, and that's one of the questions that we put to the author of Senate Bill 8, which is really at the heart of this. You're going to hear from Senator Brandon Creighton, a Republican from Conroe, in just a few minutes. But that's one of the questions that I specifically ask him is, why are you treating large districts in a different way than small districts? First, though, we get to a former teacher. Uh, I think she was a kindergarten teacher and sunny disposition, you know, uh, all of that. Uh, she left the profession years ago uh, to work on education policy uh, at the legislature. That is no easy task no. because you got a lot of uh, very uh, tight lines that you have to walk. You're trying to twist arms. You're trying to bend ears. You're trying to change hearts and minds. Uh, and she's been at this for a long time. Her name is Michelle Smith. She's with an organization that is, uh, calls itself a nonprofit, nonpartisan educational policy uh, organization here in Texas. It's called Raise Your Hand Texas. And she has really been laser focused on this bill called SB8, which would make these sweeping changes, not only to allow you to put your kids in private school, but it would also put a lot of new, uh, um, responsibilities, and responsibilities on yeah. teachers uh, to post their uh, mm -hmm. their lesson plans so that parents would have more say and be able to review those lessons pl lesson plans uh, and, and and so it would make a lot of changes it would also make a lot of changes about what could be taught in the classroom we've been seeing that movement across the country as well and uh, Dr. Michelle Smith has a lot of feelings about uh, all of this we've got Dr. Michelle Smith with us and we're just going to dive right in Let's talk about school vouchers, uh, otherwise known in this particular session as education savings accounts. Right. I think when people hear these terms, Dr. Smith, uh, first of all, thanks for being with us here. Absolutely. Uh, and please call me Michelle. Dr. Okay, that, that is very easier. Curious. Yeah. Uh, so we'll call you Michelle. So uh, when we talk about school vouchers and education savings accounts, I think that, you know, People in the public, their eyes just sort of glaze over. Maybe they turn away. It does. It's not a sexy name. It, we've heard it many, many years, many different sessions of the legislature, and nothing ever came of it. And so it seems like people have tuned out over time. You're way more connected on this, though. Do you get the sense that parents across this state are paying attention to what is being discussed there in Austin right now? And if they aren't, can you make the case of why they need to be plugged in? That's a great question. And thank you so much for having me on here. First of all, I'm really excited about having the conversation. It's a, an important one and one that we've been talking about for 17 years here at Raise Your Hand Texas. Um, it's part of the reason that the organization was founded 
by Charles Butt from the HEB grocery stores, and he has a vested interest in making sure that we have an educated uh, workforce for Texas. And so he really felt like he needed to invest in public schools and telling the good stories that are going on in our public schools, but also holding holding our schools accountable for outcomes, for quality outcomes for our students, because those are his future employees. Um, it this this issue pops up a lot in the Texas legislature. Um, it's been quiet for a couple of sessions in 2019 and 2021, and part of the reason for that is because there was a trade going on with property tax relief, and here we are talking about property tax relief again. Um, it's it. The, the interesting issue is that um, the word vouchers doesn't pull well. Um, it gets people all riled up. And so you start to see different names pop up. So this session, it's education savings accounts or it's parental empowerment. Um, and it sounds uh, a lot more positive to people. And honestly, when you say, would you like a check for your student to be able to go do something else? Um, very few people are going to say no until you start diving into the details of, well, it's going to do this or your, your student's going to have to do this to be eligible for it. And then they go, whoa, 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 this, this sounds really complex. And in a lot of instances, they say, you know, I like choice. I want for my kid to be able to go wherever I want them to go, but I'm uncomfortable talking about taxpayer dollars going to this effort. So that's mm -hmm. the like twi the, the turning point of people saying, this is much more complex than I thought it was. Thank you for giving me more information. How do I get involved? Um, so we have that conversation with people on a daily basis, both here in Austin and then around the state with our 12 regional advocacy directors. That that's their whole job is to help people better understand this issue and to explain the full details of, of what's being talked about at the legislature. So because we have the luxury of a podcast here and not just a quick little soundbite, let's dive into those details. Absolutely. Um, what are the things that bother you the most about the plans that are being put forward? Um, in, in general, Senate Bill 8 is the one that sort of seems to be the all-encompassing bill. But what bothers you most about what the legislature is talking about regarding vouchers, ESAs, whatever you want to call them? Right. Um, Senate Bill 8 is definitely the one to watch. It's what everybody's been saying. You know, I'll, I'll have this conversation with you once we see the details of the bill. Before we had Senate Bill 8, it was a much bigger program of uh, $10,000 for any family that wanted it, whether you were in private school or homeschool or whatever. And a lot of other states are doing these ESA programs that add a huge cost just instantly for the state because all of the private school kids are then eligible for it. Um, SB8 is a much more nuanced bill. Um, I, I still oppose it because it has taxpayer dollars going to private schools. Um, but right now it is only for students who are leaving the public school system or students that are entering kindergarten or pre-K for the first time. So I, I think it's interesting that legislators know that in the state of Texas, this really broad program that other states are talking about, it just isn't going to pass in Texas. Um, and so they, they introduced a much more nuanced bill um, that I still have great concerns with. 
Can we do the math on this? Because SB8, uh, as you're discussing here, uh, would give, uh, you know, let's say if I wanted to pull my kid out of public school and put them in private school, which would include a religious school, mm -hmm. um, I would get $8,000 a Correct. year to do that essentially in the voucher that they would give me. Right. But if we look at public school funding right now, we're looking at public schools getting a little more than $6,000 for my kid to attend school right now. So how does the math work there? If my kid, if they're paying $6,000 for my kid to go to school in public school right now, and I pull them out and I get $8,000 to go to a private school, right. where is the money coming from here? How does that work? That's a really great question. Um, the The amount that the state puts in is just a little bit over $6,000. And then you have the amount that the local taxpayers put in. And so it really, it depends on the, the district and the student, but it averages out to be about $10,000 per student. Mm -hmm. So this particular program kind of hits right in the middle to say, we're going to uh, spend $8,000 for that student to leave their public school and go to a private school. Um, the that's a great question of where the money is going to come from. They're literally having those conversations right now in house appropriations um, as far as the large amount of money that they're going to put into school finance this session. Um, but right now there isn't a place in there specifically for these, these voucher dollars to come from. Hmm. So at some point farther down into the legislative session, they have to say, you know what, that part of that $5,000 that they're talking about, $5 billion right now going to public schools um, is going to be carved out for a voucher program, or they're going to have to come up with even more money um, for that voucher program. And if, if, as you look into the details of the bill, it's the eight thousand dollars for the student and their family. There's also an additional provision that for school districts that are smaller than 20,000 students, the school district is going to receive $10,000 a year for two years when that kid leaves their um, their current school district. And, and so just to be just to be clear on that part of it, yes. that was a, a sort of a, a an enticement, I guess, for a lot of these rural Republicans who That's have opposed school vouchers in sessions past. Because, you know, in a lot of cases, the school district is the big employer in, in some of these smaller communities. Right. Uh, and it's sort of the gathering center. And so, you know, traditionally, they've been opposed to going forward, forward with something like this. So now we have sort of this carrot being waved here, like, hey, if you go along with this for the first two years, your tiny school district district will get more money uh, than it otherwise would have. Does right. that change the dynamics this time? Does this look to you from where you sit like this has a, an actual chance of getting through? As you mentioned, they've talked about it for a lot of years. They have talked about it for a lot of years. And, and traditionally, they've talked about a carve out for rural areas and said, we're, this isn't going to apply for rural areas of the state. This time they're totally flipping that conversation to say, not only is it going to apply for rurals, we're actually going to financially incentivize um, that district. That's not a sustainable system. Um, and it's going to be a, a significant cost for the state. We looked it up this morning. Only 67 of our school districts are actually larger than 20,000 students. We have um, 1,000 school districts in Texas. So most of our school districts would be eligible for that $10,000 per year for two years. Um, so it's just a really interesting dynamic to add to the conversation. How is that not an attack on just the urban districts? 
I think it's very much an attack on the urban districts. Um, it's part of the conservative rhetoric of of woke liberalism in our public schools. Um, and that's what's really gotten people riled up this session um, to say that we need to address this issue. And our, our rural legislators have said, you know what, that's an urban issue. Um, we don't have a lot of that crazy stuff going on in our schools out here in far east Texas or far west Texas. Um, it the, the fact that it is, it's our our urban districts that are not going to receive that $10,000 per kid when the kid leaves is feels like a slap in the face um, to those districts that they're not going to be included in that provision. And to be really honest with you, I if, if we're looking down the road to see what's going to happen here, um, I think the first thing that's going to happen is that private existing private school parents are going to say, wait, I'm not eligible for this. I thought the whole conversation was that I was going to be eligible for this. So, you know, that part of the bill gets get stricken. And then it's going to move into, uh, you know, by next session, if we don't have as much money as the legislature has right now, somebody's going to say, well, that $10,000 per student that's leaving their traditional school district, we can't afford that anymore. We're going to take that provision out as well. And so I think within a couple of sessions, we'll be looking at a full-blown um, education savings account or voucher program, even though this legislative session, it's a much more nuanced bill. If I am in one of those smaller communities then, uh, and I do decide to pull my kid out and put them in a private school, is there even capacity for the number of people who might do that in some of these smaller towns? Do we see that 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 private school classroom capacity, number one? And number two, would that $8,000 that I get to pull them out be enough to cover their whole tuition at that private school? We do not have a lot of private schools in our rural communities. Everybody knows it. That's part of the reason why the legislators have pushed back on this idea. Um, the national supporters of, of uh, education savings account programs have testified uh, during the interim to say, um, that actually in other states, there are micro schools that are popping up in rural communities. I think that's really important for legislators to clue into that they may not have private schools right now, but there could be a little micro school or a strip mall school or whatever that pops up that miraculously will be $8,000 a year. Um, when in reality, um, most of our really high qu high quality private schools in Texas are costing twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year, and normal families are just not going to be able to access those really high quality private schools. The bill addresses things other than uh, vouchers or educational savings accounts. It also talks that they're they're calling it parental rights largely, mm -hmm. but it also talks about things that they don't want taught in schools, um, that lessons need to be age appropriate. I'm using air quotes for people who can't see me, age appropriate or developmentally appropriate. Um, it also talks about, you know, teachers needing to upload curriculum so parents can review it. I've had conversations with teachers in Texas over the course of the last six months to a year. They're fed up. They're done. And that's exactly what they'll say. So when you hear about language like this, what does that do to an already suffering morale among teachers? I think it's I think it's really concerning the message that this sends to our our um, professional educators who have spent their lives 
serving their communities, serving local families, serving kids, making sure every kid in Texas is going to get a high quality education. And then for somebody to say, you know what, we're going to put you under a microscope every single day. You're going to have to turn in your curriculum, your lesson plans, your content. There's some language in the bill that talks about in chronological order for the entire year, you are going to have to put all of your content that you're going to teach um, out there for everybody to look at. I totally understand that people want transparency and they want to know what's being taught in our classrooms, but there has to be a balance between trusting the educators to do the job that they've trained, been trained to do, but also allowing parents to have a window into that. Um, because we, we have heard from a lot of families that in order for them to continue to have trust in their school district, they need to know what's going on and they need to have a voice in the process. And so I think that portion of the bill tries to tries to get at that issue, but there's elements of it that go so far that I think a lot of our teachers are going to say, you know, I'm out. I love these kids. I want to keep doing what I'm doing, but the the pressure to um, just put a constant amount of information out there every single day when their time is already um, really strained um, is really concerning to me as, an ed- as, as someone who used to be in the classroom. Well, you know, yeah, a lot of you, those, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you you hear a lot of the teachers say they don't have time to teach because mm-hmm. of the documenting and the paperwork that they are responsible for. I know that the Charles Butt Foundation did a survey of teachers in 2022, and I think it was 77% who said, I've thought about quitting. Um, yeah. You said you used to be in the classroom. Did some mm-hmm. of these issues drive you out? Where My sister retired after she hit that mark of public. She, she hit the exact mark where the formula was, I don't know what it is, age plus experience equals 80 right. or something right. like that. When yeah. she hit that mark, she's like, I am out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of this was what just, you know, bothers teachers so much, the bureaucracy. Is that what happened to you? No, I left to actually um, come work with the legislature and because, uh, and it's, this all ties together, interestingly, that there's so few people that are in the Capitol that have been educators that when they write a bill and it sounds really good, and then teachers have to come into the building and say, you know, it sounds great, but this is what this looks like on a daily basis in my classroom, and it's just not sustainable. Um, it's important for teachers to engage in that process, and we're actually bringing in teachers, on, you know, on Monday of every single week of the legislative session, pretty much, to do exactly that that same thing, to go into legislators' offices and say, this is what this bill means in my classroom. This is what it feels like. This is what it looks like. This is the time it's going to take for me to do this. And we want to be a constructive part of that conversation um, so that they, to help them understand, um, you know, we've got to prioritize keeping high quality teachers in our classrooms. there's 308,000 teachers, I believe, in the state of Texas in our classrooms right now. And if we don't show them some some of the respect that they so greatly deserve, um, we're going to be looking at a statewide crisis. There is, um, some would argue that there is already a crisis with that. You know, you mentioned that 308,000 teachers in Texas classrooms. There's a companion bill here that would pay teachers more. Mm-hmm. Is that enough, though, if you start putting onerous expectations on them with some of these bills? I mean, uh, the Texas American Federation of Teachers said last year that in the prior year, 43,000 Texas teachers left the profession 
That is a tremendous chunk of, of, of institutional knowledge uh, that is heading toward the exits. Do you think we keep seeing numbers like that if all of this goes through? I think we do, and it's not sustainable. Um, and the reality will be that we'll have alternative, alternatively certified teachers. Which we're seeing a lot now in, in some of the districts. A lot of in Texas, absolutely. And Explain what that is, if you can. This is a, a teacher who who comes in without the the certification, but they're working toward it. Uh, absolutely, yes. So the they don't go th through the traditional process of going to a higher ed institution and receiving those years of training and pedagogical expertise that they need to enter the classroom. Our alternatively certified teachers, which I think it's up to about 60% of at this point of our teachers in Texas are alternatively certified. Um, they may be subject area experts, but they're not people who've spent a lot of time talking about the science of teaching. And so they're walking into the classroom sometimes with, I think it's 30 hours right now. Um, don't quote me on that one, please. But they, they have to have a very uh, small number of hours of classroom experience before they walk in and they're ready to teach a classroom full of, full of kids, which is challenging enough if you are if you have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree in education and some of these folks don't oh i was um, thinking even of the the ones who aren't certified but who are working towards certification we're seeing that as well where yeah. they're they're being hired on as long as they kind of continue working toward That's that right. certification while they're teaching and, and sort of learning on the job and so you know we have a lot of people that are very green to the profession and you know a bill like this that is putting even more pressure on our teachers is going to cause people to leave. There is the companion bill that talks about um, more money going into um, our teacher salaries. There are political reasons that you have a bill like that moving at the same time as a bill like SB8. Um, we all know that in, in the political world. Um, but it's, but it's, Yes, teachers want more money, but I also think they want respect. That's what our polling information has said as well is, you know, yes, certainly I need to have a livable wage, but I also need some autonomy and trust coming my way in my classroom so I can teach my kids. I do want to ask you about families in communities where there are just historically underperforming schools, because um, some people may say, well, you know, they deserve better. They deserve a choice. And some people may believe that SB8 is the way to do that. What's your response to people who say this gives families an option that they may not currently have? We do hear that um, with parents saying my kid's in a bad situation right now. Um, I think that this bill actually has some provisions in it that would help with that um, as far as transfers either within the district or to another district. Um so that you know parents don't feel like that they're stuck in the in the campus that they are in right now. Um, so I, I I think that's something worth looking at. Um, my concern, and we tend to look really broadly at student performance across the state and overall outcomes. There's some interesting um, information from a mobility a student mobility study back from 2020, I believe, from the Uni University of Texas at San Antonio 
that actually says that every time a student moves, their probability of graduating on time actually decreases. So for our students that are not economically disadvantaged, the first time they make a move to another campus, their probability of graduating on time is going to lower by 2.4%. But for our economically disadvantaged students, their probability of graduating on time goes down 6.7%. Wow. And so if we have this issue of parent shopping, um, which a lot of parents are, and I totally understand, they also need to understand that every time they pick their kid up and move them to another campus, their probability of graduating on time is going to go down. So my, my, priority is going to our legislators. And I keep pointing that way because they're right next door. Um, that they, uh, you know, if they're going to look at an entire system and make sure that our kids are graduating, they need to be looking at actual data that says shopping is bad for our kids. We need to invest in those campuses that are not doing a good job for our students and make sure that they're delivering on the promise that the state has made to those families and to those students to have a quality education. This whole concept of like the escape approach of, you know, I just want out of here is actually educationally not going to help our kids. If SB8 passes in its current form or some iteration that looks a lot like it, can you give us sort of the the long view on this as we you know go through the next several years of what that will mean for the education system, the public education system here in Texas? What would the the real world effects be? I think we can certainly look at what other states are experiencing right now, which is that these start as really small programs and people say, well, it's not that many kids. It's going to be fine. Michelle, calm down. Why are you still opposing this bill? And then you look four, six years out and it's actually a strain on the state's budget. Um, they're not showing improvement for students that are in these programs over time. Um, the programs get bigger and bigger and bigger over time. Uh, Arizona right now with their education savings account program has this huge backlog of um, approvals of expenses that somebody is, is having to sit in an office at the state level and decide whether what parents are spending their money on is, is accurate or not. It creates this whole other bureaucracy of um issues that the state is going to have to deal with instead of just focusing on improving our public schools that have 5.4 million kids sitting in them right now. Um, so it, it balloons over time. It doesn't serve our students. Um, and it's, it's, you know, this, I know people get tired of the phrase, the camel's nose under the tent, but I'm really worried that this session, this is a very uh, large and mischievous camel headed under the tent and uh, Texas that has been able to hold the gate for a very long time is going to make a decision that's not going to serve our students. If you had the chance to go one-on-one -on -one with the authors of this bill, what would you tell them? Well, we I'll, I'll focus on Senate Bill 8, which is the bill that everybody's watching. Um, Chairman Creighton is um, a wonderful advocate for his school districts. He spends a lot of time with his school leaders, making sure that they have really high quality schools in his area of the state. He has some really great school districts. Um, I think that this is a political box that conservatives feel like they have to check right now. Um, and he's the chairman of the Senate Education Committee, so he's the right person to carry the bill. I would say to him, I think there's some things worth talking about 
in this particular bill that are actually going to support parents and help them have a, a, a more transparent process within their child's education. But the portion of the bill that deals specifically with vouchers is just not sustainable for the state of Texas. My last thing for you, Michelle, would be to ask, you know, if you were an odds maker, you know, you've been around Austin a long time. This discussion keeps coming <laughs> up over and over again, and somehow it keeps on getting defeated session after session. Okay. What are the chances? What are the chances that this bill or something like it uh, that's you know fairly far reaching compared mm-hmm. to years past, what are the chances it makes it through this time? As the bill is currently filed, it doesn't have the votes. It just isn't going to get to the finish line. Um, you know, it may get through the Senate, but it won't get through the House. Things get much more interesting late in the session as people start making changes to the bill or having other conversations. I'm very optimistic that organizations like ours and legislators that are very supportive of their public schools are going to continue to hold the gate this session. Hmm. I did not expect that answer. <laughs> I'm ultimately ultimately an optimist. Oh, all right. Well, Michelle, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. We may have to check back with you, uh, you know, as the the weeks and months unfold in front of us here, that. because this affects you know every part of the state, and we're talking about you know hundreds of thousands, millions of, of, of families. Uh, this is a big deal. Absolutely. Happy to continue talking. Thank you. And we so appreciate Michelle. your optimism, Michelle. We need more <laughs> optimism, right? <laughs> I'm an elementary school teacher. I mean, you have to walk in the door every day and tell those kids, this is going to be the best day that you've you've ever had in my classroom. And they smile and you learn. And um, that's what we do. That's awesome. It's still in your DNA. Michelle, right. thank you. Okay, y'all. The conversation doesn't stop here. Find us on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Yolitics. Okay, so the sunny disposition there of a former elementary school teacher, uh, but she's, you know, she's having to talk about some serious stuff, and this is high-stakes stuff, too. One of the things that really gets her ire up as well is uh, she says, you know, there's a lot of irony involved in in this bill because basically, uh, you know, a lot of schools are being judged based based upon how they did on the STAR test, you know, the the much-loved STAR test here in Texas. Uh, and she says, That's said with sarcasm, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and, and she says the irony here is, though, that if these kids, uh, if, if kids are pulled out of public school and sent off to private school, they no longer have to even take the STAR test. Uh, it would be up to that private school to determine what kind of test they take. And then she says it's really hard to have accountability for those private schools because if the kids aren't all taking the same tests, how do you compare apples to apples to see how the public schools are doing versus how the kids in private schools are doing. And so she's really worried about the accountability of these private schools going forward if this indeed happens. Legitimate concern to have. And Republicans are saying, well, we're going to make sure that we vouch for the schools that get this money before we send them the money. But the question is, what exactly is in the curriculum? They don't have to stand up to the same types of requirements that public schools do. As you said, assessments aren't done the same way. So how do you know that the kids are actually performing better when they're at a private school, because you really can't compare, it's apples and oranges. And, and these are all reasons why uh, Dr. Smith, you just heard her there, and it surprised me uh, when she said that she, she doesn't think that this thing has a chance. She Surprises doesn't think it'll make too. it through. 
Uh, I was surprised to hear her say that. I thought that she would, would have a different tack because this does seem to be stickier this time. It does seem to have more momentum this time than when it's been talked about here in Texas in years past. Yeah, and we wanted to know why. Why does it have more momentum? And so, you know, and we also wanted to know the details behind this bill, some of the nitty gritty. The funding is a, is a big question. And so we put some of those more detailed questions to the author of the bill. That's the person you need to hear from, and he's the one who's going to be trying to whip votes and get this passed. And this is Senator Brandon Creighton, a Republican from Conroe. Yeah, you actually got to talk to him the other day. Let's mm -hmm. listen in on some of that. Hey, y'all. This is where Texas politics gets interesting for another smart conversation on eolitics. Uh, you can call them educational savings accounts. Some people call them vouchers. No matter what, your proposal does take taxpayer money from public schools and give them to private schools. Why do you support that? Yeah, I always think the reference and nomenclature is interesting, and I appreciate you bringing it up. You know, uh, but the traditional voucher is money distributed straight to the family, right? And for education savings accounts, uh, as it's indicated in our policy, uh, the comptroller's office would take applications for the use of these $8,000 education savings accounts, and that would go directly to an approved uh, private school that the family preferred uh, and also, uh, you know, kind of work seamlessly there uh, in, in a different way than a voucher would. So uh, separate from that, you know, we're working hard to lift up public schools and teachers more than ever before, as we have the last several sessions. So as we provide historic funding to public schools, as we provide separate from that new enrollment growth funding, as we provide separate from that pay raises across the board for teachers and replenishment of our incentive allotments and bonus structures, and as we put $600 million into maybe even towards a billion dollars into separate allotments and programs for school safety, separate from all of that, we have a surplus. And our surplus money, as it's being used for property tax, as, as it's being used for the border, for healthcare initiatives, it's also being used for educational freedom and alternatives that our Texas students need in certain categories. So, uh, it's not in any way coming out of public education funding. You talked about the $8,000 credit, um, but from the state of Texas, the state gives about $6,000 to public schools per student. So why is why is that number so different? Uh, well, you know, even Raise Your Hand Texas uh, in their data shows that an average of about $10,000 uh, per student travels uh, across the state of Texas for our 6 million public school students. Some show those averages up in the 12 and $14,000 range. So uh, the median is always interesting uh, and you have a basic allotment, but you also have tier one and tier two allotments in different categories that provide funding for students. And those averages are higher than what you mentioned. For the $8,000, you know, we just looked at a number that from a scarcity of dollar standpoint that we could comfortably justify in this budget to not create any kind of a fiscal cliff. You know, the feds don't really worry about that as they print another trillion to throw at any certain problem and they just kind of try to figure it out later. We actually balance our budgets around here. We look at incoming revenue and we, we look at surpluses uh, cautiously because we can't uh, obligate future legislatures or budgets to money that won't be there in the future. 
So you're saying 8,000 is something that feels sustainable on down the road. Absolutely. Uh, why does your bill treat small districts so much differently than it treats large districts? Well, as you mentioned, we have a hold harmless uh, in the, the legislation for, you know, any school districts of 20,000 students or smaller. Uh, that's not really what most people around the building describe as just small districts, right? 20,000 students or less. But we try to, again, pick a, a, a number. We always have to land on certain numbers that are sustainable within the budget. And in this regard, we're doing our best as rural uh, members often acknowledge that in other states, we haven't really seen a lot of rural students use these ESAs. But in the circumstances where they would, it helps some of these districts that aren't the largest districts in Texas to scale the impact uh, of any student leaving for a couple of years until they get their feet under them. Again, if you look at Arizona, if you look at Florida, if you look at other states around the country, as we wouldn't be first, second, or third in this regard, we would be 31st in the nation to have these policies going forward on behalf of kids. And they, they just haven't seen the rural um, you know, use of these ESAs uh, in, in other states, but we provided a soft landing either way. A couple of weeks ago, when you were on Inside Texas Politics, you said you were starting to win over some rural Republicans. And so are you seeing more of that because of the way you've sort of carved out that $10,000 credit that you're going to give to some of those smaller districts if students do choose to take part? Uh, it's a great question. No, I, I'd love to take credit for winning hearts and minds, but really our parents and our families across this state are, are the ones that are winning hearts and minds and creating the momentum that we're creating uh, for exactly this effort with our parental bill of rights, uh, certainly with our teacher bill of rights and our entire sort of uh, public school and, and, and parental rights and education freedom agenda this session. So I think all members are looking at this issue differently. We're in a different place than we even were thir three years ago with what's happening in the landscape across education in America. And I think Texas should be leading on all fronts. SB8 also talks about curriculum and it talks about a prohibition on lessons that are not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate. Who is going to define what age appropriate is? Yeah, we'll, we'll work on uh, definitions and, and the certain provisions of the bill as we come out with the first draft. Uh, all through the committee process and it, within the hundred steps it takes to pass a bill uh, through the process. But right now, the legislature will be making those determinations and tightening up definitions based on the will of the membership and, and expertise and input. Uh, the bill also talks about requiring teachers or districts to upload lessons to a portal that uh, parents could review before they're taught. Teachers have long complained about paperwork and all of the documentation that they do. They've told me they don't have time to teach. What's your reaction when you, or what's your response to those teachers who say, I barely have time to do what I need to do now, and now you're wanting me to upload lessons to a portal that's going to take even more time away from my teaching time? Uh, my response is that Texas Republicans in the legislature are going to stand for teachers like no other representative body in America. So with our teacher bill of rights, with our new curriculum rollout that we're 
uh, working on and, and presenting here soon in committee. Uh, some of these efforts and changes are estimated to save teachers between seven and nine hours a week on workload. So with those efforts that we have coming uh, through this legislative process, all of these uh, you know, measures fit together to make sure that teachers are lifted up, supported, compensated, and kept safe more than ever before. And I just want them to know that we've got their back and they'll soon uh, be hearing more and more about these different measures. I know Senate Bill 9, your companion bill, does talk about giving teachers a raise. How much are we talking about? And where does that money come from? Well, we're in the budgeting process on our teacher bill of rights, and that includes an across the board pay raise. And it also includes uh, a maybe a, a modest uh, additional bump for our rural teachers uh, that even though we talk about starting salaries averaging between 58 and 60,000 across the state, uh, so many of our rural teachers are still in the upper 30s, lower 40s sometimes. So we're going to make sure that they're lifted up in ways that they have not been before. Our teacher incentive allotment uh, in our bonus structure that we started a couple of years ago has 7,000 teachers in Texas right now making up to 17 grand above their base salary that never were before. And those types of programs that are working so well and that other states are starting to model that more and more public school districts are applying for eligibility for, we're making sure that the dollars will be there on the next round. All of this is a budget working in progress. So stay tuned on, on the rest of those, those uh, concerns for uh, the totals that will be associated with those efforts. We saw last week the state take over Houston ISD because of one chronically underperforming school. There's no such oversight of private schools. And so the way students assessed there is very different. So where would the accountability be if you do send taxpayer money, public taxpayer money to private schools? Well, instead of sending taxpayer money to private schools, we're empowering parents with the money that is already theirs to make some decisions related to education for their kids. And we know that really uh, bullying, uh, you know, safety, uh, special needs, really those, those particular concerns as examples, they really know no income level distinction, right? So I, I think, you know, rather than worrying about... Um, uh, the, the safeguards on the funds themselves, that's the difference between a voucher and an education savings account. These schools will be already approved on a list by the state, and uh, they will have a very, very reputable track records. And um, the, the money, uh, as used by each individual family as it belongs to them, will be for the benefit of, of their particular kids and their students' needs. Senator Creighton, you think you have the votes to get this passed? I believe we're working in strong momentum. You know, I haven't really counted heads yet. I'm just having a lot of conversations, and I feel like it's a different day than it has ever been before uh, in this subject matter. So we've got a very measured, thoughtful approach uh, towards uh, what we're proposing. And uh, as Arizona and Florida and 28 other states have shown great success, with their education savings account initiatives. Uh, we plan also to show his, an historic lift for public schools in our public
public school teachers like never before. Anyone that creates a narrative that you can't lift up public schools and teachers and also provide educational empowerment for families is just creating a narrative that's false and divisive. We're going to be able to accomplish both, and I think the membership will get there. Thank you, Senator. Okay, thank you so much. Y'all don't go anywhere. Yolitics will be right back. All right, uh, State Senator Brandon Creighton there speaking with the great Teresa Woodard. I'm going to say it as many times as I can. It makes you blush every time I say it. <laughs> it makes me uncomfortable. But it's true. It's just true. You're kind. Uh, so, uh, you know, interesting that he, you know, you're asking him, is this going to happen this time? He's right. It does seem to have more momentum. I always think it's interesting when uh, the bill author or a bill sponsor says, well, you know, we haven't really counted the heads yet and this and that. Yeah. That means there's still a lot of wheeling and dealing uh, going on behind the scenes, and it's still a very uncertain prospect. And it's, he wasn't sure about some of the funding for all of this, and he readily admits it. And here's one Those thing. Those are big details. Yes. Here's one thing to definitely keep in mind. Um, I checked. We're about 70 days into the session, 70 days left in the session. So we're about halfway there. A lot can change with this bill. Yeah. This is not going to look the same as it looks today whenever we get to the end of May. Um, and some of the things that I think are important to take away from this conversation with, with um, Senator Creighton and with Dr. Smith, the families who currently have their kids in private schools, mm -hmm. you don't think they're going to stand up and say, where's my $8,000? Right. Because they won't get it. Right. If their kids are already in a private school, they're not eligible to now get this money from the state. And I think that's going to be a very interesting issue to watch as this goes forward. How are you going to defend that to families who have already been spending that money? And then we have that $10,000 question. That's a huge question. Will too. that money that they're offering these small rural districts, will that money be enough for the Republicans who represent those districts all over the, the, the state here, uh, those legislative districts, will those Republicans go along this time or will they say, nah, two years of those payments to the schools in my district, that's not enough certainty for the future of what is a very important piece of my district, which is the school system. And is it sustainable for the state of Texas to be able to do that? You give them $10,000 for a couple of years, what do you do after that? Right. And Senator Creighton says, you know, it's to, it's to level the playing field, get them on their feet when they lose this funding. So we're going to sweeten the pot for two years. Well, what happens then? Well, you have that warning that we just got from Dr. Smith who said these things always start small and they always become a lot bigger as time goes and they become a strain on the state's budget. So uh, hopefully, you know, if you haven't been paying real close attention to what's going on in Austin with this, uh, this brought you up to speed on that. If you have been paying attention, hopefully this, you know, filled in some blanks that you weren't aware of. Uh, we will definitely be keeping an eye on this, though, because, again, this would affect, uh, you know, we've got more than 5 million public school kids in Texas. Texas, and they all have families. This affects a lot of people here in Texas. And so we'll keep watching what happens with this one and see if it succeeds this time or if it goes the way uh, that this discussion has gone many times before and just fizzles out by the end of the session. Yeah, I think this is even predates Governor Abbott that we've had oh, these yeah. discussions. Governor Perry, Perry maybe even Governor Bush. Governor Bush, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, and, and also uh, we should point out every time we talk to lawmakers about things like this and we ask them, does it matter to you when people email or write to you or call your office? Oh, yeah, it matters. So if you feel strongly about this one way or the other, 
reach out, let them know, uh, at least make let your voice, that voice be, heard, be heard. You got it. Thanks as always for listening today. Uh, and, and, and thank you, Teresa, for being here today. Pleasure as always. It's a breath of fresh air. <laughs> and, and I will just toast you one more time Cheers. with our two fruity beers Cheers. here. <laughs> Eat your heart, drink your heart out, Jason Whiteley. He'll be back with us next week. Bye y'all. Click subscribe and get Yolitics every week. Eolitics, the unofficial political podcast of Texas.